Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. This WBEZ podcast is supported by Ravinia, with over 100 concerts under the stars this summer, including Daryl Hall and Elvis Costello, Nora Jones with special guest Mavis Staples, the Beach Boys with special guest John Stamos, Shaggy and TLC, Jason Isbell and the 400 Unit, the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, and more. Their 30-acre park is nestled in a gently wooded area. Bring your own picnic or eat at one of the park restaurants. Tickets available now only at ravinia.org. Hi, I'm Jen White, and this is The Morning Shift. Gregory Mitchie taught in a middle school in the back of the yards neighborhood in the 90s. He left to get his Ph.D. and was in a tenure-track professorship when he got a call that brought him back to the school where he started his teaching career. His new book, Same As It Never Was, Notes on a Teacher's Return to the Classroom, recounts his years teaching in CPS from 2012 to 2018. Over those years, he found himself immersed in an educational environment significantly changed from when he first started his teaching career, and he had to learn to navigate all the ways his work as an educator intersected with the issues his students faced, from high-stakes testing to police brutality to what it means to be patriotic. Gregory Mitchie joins us now. Welcome to The Morning Shift. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So take us back to that call that brought you back into the classroom. What was happening in your life that made you decide to return to this school? Well, I'd thought about it for a long time. Uh, I'd been a professor for almost a decade, and I got asked all the time, especially by undergraduate students, do you think you'll ever go back to the classroom to teaching kids? And I always said the same thing, maybe. And I always meant it, but the further away I got from classroom teaching, the harder it seemed to go back. One is I was just older, and truthfully, I think life as an academic becomes a pretty comfortable life. Um, And I'm not taking anything away from professors or definitely education professors, but I just think classroom teaching, there's an energy expenditure that you just don't have as a professor. You, You have time to go to the washroom. You have time to sit down and think about your next class, which may be a few hours away, whereas uh, in Chicago public schools, you have maybe two minutes to think about your next class. And in elementary schools, no time because you go directly from one to the next. So honestly, I didn't know if I could still do it. And every time I said maybe, the older I got, I thought maybe not. Um, I didn't want to be one of those athletes who kind of plays one or two years too long. And then people are like, you know, you should have, you should (laughs) have hung it up a long time ago. But when she called, I just thought, you know, if I don't do it now, I don't think I'll ever do it. And and you got a call from the principal of the school. From the principal of the school. And she was really asking me if I could let my undergraduates know if I knew any undergraduates that she had a few openings. And she just kind of said in jest, you wouldn't be interested in coming back, would you, with a laugh. And I said, well, what's, what do you have? And that kind of led to me going back that fall. Well, you find yourself at the same school you started yes. your career in. Uh, you call it Quincy in the book. You, right. you changed the name for privacy reasons. Yes. Uh, and the school is in the back of the yards neighborhood. How had things changed in the neighborhood and, and in the school from when you first started your career? First of all, it's it's a, a beautiful neighborhood. I love back of the yards. And uh, one of the things I think 
that has changed is a lot of the young people that have grown up there that were first-generation immigrants, their, their parents moved there, are now young adults who are doing amazing things in the neighborhood from opening up coffee shops to uh, having pop-up free art classes for kids and adults. So there's a lot of youthful energy that's bringing really positive things to the neighborhood. On the other hand, there is cyclical violence that happens not just in back of the yards, but in many struggling uh, neighborhoods in Chicago. And unfortunately, a few of these years in this six-year span were very, very difficult years because of violence. And, And what's really changed in that sense is when the violence happens, a lot of times it's with much more powerful weapons that, you know, shouldn't be on the street, and that's not a problem of the neighborhood. That's a problem of policy and a problem of, of politics. But you know that's not different because the neighborhood has had cyclical violence. But I, I just think the intensity of it in these last few years seemed seemed uh, more difficult. You started at Quincy in 2012. How had the profession changed in, in the years when you'd been in in academia? Chicago was one of the first places that high-stakes testing really took off. So I saw the beginnings of it and didn't like it at all. But I think I saw as a professor working with young people who were in classrooms in, in Chicago, it just got so much more intense. And the pressure on teachers to teach to the test and the goal being higher test scores um, you know, I have a lot of sympathy for principals. I think they have a lot of pressures on them, but I think they feel that pressure to raise test scores. And whereas I feel like the question we should always be asking ourselves in schools is, is it meaningful? Are kids growing, not just in terms of test scores, but are they growing as people? I quote in the book, a a teacher friend of mine, when I told him I might be coming back, he said, I had don't know if there's a place for teachers like you anymore. And and we had another veteran teacher. What did he mean by that? We worked together in the 1990s. We actually team taught for a a couple different years. And we did a lot of project-based learning. And projects take a while. And I think there's a real pressure now to keep it moving, keep it moving, because, you know, you're on this uh, timeline, just erased kind of to that testing deadline. And then... There's a bit of, you know, teachers feel like they can relax, but then you have a month left in school. So eight months of testing pressure and one month where you might be able to explore things in more depth, that's tough. And it's not always like that. And there's definitely many, many teachers out there in CPS now, and there were back then, who are pushing against that and who are trying to do things differently. But the pressure is, is, is still there. But that was the reality you walked into when you took this job again in 2012. Talk about how you had to navigate that space between the pressure of getting your students ready for these standardized tests, but also wanting to create an environment where you felt they were really learning. Mm-hmm. Well, the first year was easy because I came back to teach a media class, which was what I taught in the 1990s. And that's what really got me back when the principal said, we can figure out a way to get that class going again. I have an after school video production program. So media is not a tested subject. And when you're not teaching a tested subject, it's just a whole different ball game. But the second year, there were some budget cuts and they, we lost a teaching position and I was moved out of media and into teaching social studies. And then uh, I took a reading class also. So reading and math are the tested subjects. So that's when I, I knew I would feel the pressure. And 
it was an interesting position to be in because as a professor, I had spoken out against standardized testing for many years. I had written op-eds against standardized testing and basically tried to teach my prospective teachers not to give in to that pressure, to try to find ways to keep one eye on the reality because the reality is we're measuring kids by those test scores now, so you can't just ignore it because that's doing your kids a disservice. Um, So to keep one eye on that but to keep another eye on other possibilities. How can you keep an eye on the scores but still uh, get into some in-depth learning, still build a curriculum around students' lives and experiences, still teach an anti-racist, anti-biased curriculum? Because for me, it doesn't matter how important the tests are, those things are just as important. The arts, you know, how do we bring creative expression into the classroom? And again, that's something that takes time. One of the Chicago high school teachers I interviewed for my second book talked a lot about that, uh, about just there was always a voice in her head if she was doing project-based work. You've got to hurry up. You've got to hurry up. The test is coming. The test is coming. And I think many teachers still feel that because every year when you get those scores, it's like for some schools, they're like feeling good and other schools know that the pressure may intensify the next year. And it's not a good feeling. That's Gregory Mitchie, and his new book is Same As It Never Was, Notes on a Teacher's Return to the Classroom. It tells the story of Mitchie's decision to return to teaching in Chicago's Back of the Yards neighborhood after spending several years as a tenure-track education professor. In it, he writes about the challenges and the lessons he's learned over the past six years. I was really interested in one of the issues you explored in the book, um, this idea of mirrors and Windows, and I should say you you are white, mm-hmm. and your students were predominantly or exclusively children of color. Mm-hmm. So first, explain that concept of mirrors and windows. First of all, it's not a concept I created. Uh, it was first written about by Dr. Rudine Sim Bishop. She was talking about in terms of children's literature that black children, Latino children need to. And all children of color, all children need to see themselves in the books they read that needs to reflect their experience. For white kids, the windows are very important. They have plenty of mirrors being held up for them in popular culture all the time and in in children's literature, but they also need to see windows into other experiences. Um, You know, it's all about empathy, building empathy. So I see that as a metaphor for curriculum, but I also see it as a metaphor for teaching that as teachers, especially for white teachers. If you're going in as a middle-class white person, especially if you've had very little experience in spaces that weren't mostly white, you've got to realize that you've lived a life in a house of mirrors, and you've got to start breaking that down and opening up windows onto your students' lives, onto the community, which means staying after school, which means maybe going to the church in the community, even if that's not your faith, or going to the park and hanging out, watching kids play soccer, whatever it might be, and reading. Uh, The first school I taught in Chicago was predominantly African-American, and I felt pretty prepared to teach um, black kids just because of my background in North Carolina. I grew up in neighborhoods and went to schools that were very integrated, but it was mostly just black and white. So the the Mexican-American experience was something that I knew very little about. So I think self-education for white teachers is really, really important. Related to that is this idea that um, Dr. Ibram Kendi has been talking about in his new book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, is one thing to say, well, I'm not racist, I'm a teacher, I'm not racist, but I really think it's important to be an anti-racist. We, schools and classrooms are places where 
some of these really horrible ideas grow and fester that turn into some of the awful things we see happening in our country and our world. And I think it's the responsibility of teachers and maybe even especially white teachers to to teach against racist ideas, sexist ideas, homophobic ideas. I think we have to be very, be very intentional about that. And windows and mirrors, I think, is a kind of foundational metaphor that can help you get there. Well, throughout the book, you highlight these moments when societal issues came front and center in your classroom. Mm -hmm. Um, Issues like police brutality, immigration status, even questions around what it means to be patriotic. Yes. What have you learned about your role as a teacher and helping your students think critically about those issues, but also, you know, the care you have to take in in how you teach about those things. It's difficult. In fact, I was just talking with a couple of colleagues about it, you know, before I came over here. And it's something I think that thoughtful teachers continue to wrestle with, not just every year, but every time you teach uh, a topic that could be traumatic for kids or that could... Um, trigger some things for kids or could really, you know, leave them with more questions and answers and in a very uncomfortable place. Uh, There's a chapter in the book where I teach about it. I use a documentary film called Latinos Beyond Rio, which is mostly about stereotypes of Latinx people in in the media. And I'd used it before, but last year when we showed it, it really got a lot of kids very upset, more so than I was prepared for. And I knew it had the potential to do that and thought I had introduced it in a way and even paused it before the last section of the film to say, remember, this. there's some pretty difficult images here, but it's still, they weren't ready. And I, I really felt that day I went home feeling like a a failure because do I want students to understand that there are stereotypical images and um, hurtful images of Latinx people in the media, and more importantly, that those media images can influence how people think. And not that they don't know those things, but I want to create a space where we can talk about that and, and also think about what can we do about it. For example, when we make our video, our media creations in class, how can we talk back to those stereotypes? But I didn't prepare them enough because it some of them were just really, really upset. I mean, in tears and didn't want to talk. I mean, I went home that night. It was a couple of days before, before the winter, winter break, so I didn't have much time to recover. But I think I did a decent job the next day. But I do think that's why a lot of teachers avoid controversial or difficult topics because the, it's the proverbial can of worms. And once you open it up, you know, are you prepared to deal with it? And if not, uh, some might argue you could do more harm than good. And I think that the trust you build with students over the course of the year allows you to make mistakes and for kids to understand that even if you hurt them, you didn't intend to hurt them. That you're- you, you use the word trust there. And in reading the book and, and reading how you have to build these, these really deep, meaningful relationships with multiple children, I wonder, as someone who's both, you know, taught how to be a teacher and someone mm-hmm. who's been in the classroom, are we expecting too much uh, of educators? One impression I never want to give off is, I yes, I try to build very, very strong relationships with my students, and I hope I'm successful a lot of the time, sometimes not. 
the teachers in my building, we have teachers who do amazing things, who build really strong relationships with kids. I've seen, I've been in many, many Chicago schools and seen the same thing. So I think it's very dangerous, you know, to hold a teacher up as someone who has done this. I wrote a book. Every teacher in Chicago public schools could write a book. I've learned after writing a couple of books, it mostly is time. If you, you know, can somehow squeeze in the time to do it, we all have stories and every Chicago public school teacher has an important story. Are we expecting too much of teachers? I think we're expecting too much because of all the things that are that are put on us in terms of paperwork and evaluation and testing. It's a heavy, heavy load of things that, for me, aren't the things that really matter in my job. The things that really matter in teaching are what you just said, building strong relationships with kids, helping kids to find their passion if they haven't already, if they have already, helping them further uh, that passion, building strong relationships with parents, and creating opportunities for kids to have meaningful experiences in school that hopefully will lead them to further explore things that are of interest to them. I do think schools are a place where we have to um, look at what's going on in the world. And obviously you have to do that at an age-appropriate level, and that's where those things become difficult. When I was a professor and I would teach students becoming elementary teachers, a lot of the um, young people who are becoming kindergarten or first grade teachers would say, let's just take the Columbus story. And we would we would read Howard Zinn and, you know, talk about the real story, what really happened. And they would say, well, how could you teach this to first grade? And I would usually say, well, maybe you can't. But don't. If you can't teach the story, you don't have to teach it. You don't have to teach about Columbus in kindergarten. If it's a false story, there's many, many other things you could teach about. But maybe there is an age-appropriate way to do it. So I think uh, we have to be cognizant of that. We have to always, um, you know, think about the developmental level of our students. But I think, you know, confronting the big issues of our time is important. And I think maybe I've felt I feel that even more. Not maybe I feel that even more stronger teaching in the in the last decade than I did in the 1990s. And maybe it's just because of the things that have been happening. But there just seems like there's been so many things that how can you turn away from Ferguson? How can you turn away from Charlottesville? In Chicago, how can you turn away from Laquan McDonald? I mean, we used 16 shots, parts of it, in the classroom last year. I'm not saying every teacher needs to do that in that way, but I do think part of the job of education is helping young people begin to see themselves and themselves in the world. And we have to see the world in its fullness, and unfortunately sometimes it hurts. Mm-hmm. So you're teaching seventh and eighth graders. Yes. Uh, tell us about about your students. I mean, that's a that's a particular yes. <laughs> developmental age. Yeah. The, most people, when you tell them you teach middle school, their first reaction is not positive. I love it, and I think most middle school teachers do. It's such um, it's such an awesome age because every day you can see them grasping a bigger and bigger picture or a deeper and deeper way to understand things. And for me, that's the most um, energizing thing about teaching middle school is it's just this real turning point of kids who are coming into their own identities and thinking more about who they are, but also really starting to look at the world beyond the block, beyond the neighborhood, and thinking about what is my place in this world. And I think that's part of what we, need, we have to do as teachers is help them think about that in ways that they may not have before. What do you hope people take away from this book, whether they're educators, maybe people just starting in the classroom um, for the first time this school year? 
or or parents who are you know trying to figure out how to best help their kid to navigate the educational system. I hope people can read this book and see you know one teacher's attempts to do right by his students, and that includes a lot of mistakes, and that learning really is a social process. It's not just about a good teacher. It's an interaction between students and teacher, and it's interaction between among teachers. To the more, and that's another thing we don't have enough of in schools is time for teachers really to meet together and and talk. Um, and yeah, I, I hope people can read the book and see that teachers are thoughtful and teachers want great things for the kids that are in front of them every day. I mean, I often say that. For me, there's two classrooms. There's a classroom I envision, the classroom I imagine, and there's a classroom that plays out every day. And what keeps me going as a teacher, and I think this is true for many teachers, is every day trying to get closer to that classroom I envision. And the more days I can do that, uh, the better. And the days I don't, you know, there's tomorrow. That's Gregory Mitchie. He teaches 7th and 8th graders in Chicago's Back of the Yards neighborhood. His latest book is Same as It Never Was, Notes on a Teacher's Return to the Classroom. And that's it for today's Morning Shift. Lots of interesting and important things happening in and around Chicago this week, and you'll stay on top of it if you subscribe to the podcast. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and let's talk again soon. Thanks for listening to the news live on WBEZ and NPR. The WBEZ stream sounds great in the kitchen on your smart speaker and anywhere on the WBEZ app. Listen every day.